Well, good morning, church. You can't make me follow the joy choir. Hey, I, I, what, what an honor to be able to come in here, 9 o'clock, 1045, and to hear them sing. So, so, so beautiful. Uh, my name is Trevor Miller. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horeb, and I consider it a great honor this morning to be able to be in this space, in the traditional room with you this morning, as we open up God's Word together and allow God to speak to us something new and for us to be transformed into the people that He wants us to be. As you may know, we've been in a sermon series called On the Move, and we've been looking at how Jesus, the things that he began to preach and teach and do in the Gospels, he continued on then in the book of Acts. So after he ascended into heaven, all of his work continued, but this time through his disciples, those empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue to do great work. And kind of the, the big picture of the series that we've been talking through is the work that Jesus began to do in the Gospels that he continued to do in Acts is meant to continue on to today through people like you and me, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a part of what God has been doing because God is on the move. It's meant to be replicated in our life, in our community, and in our world. And can we just acknowledge this point? Our world needs it now more than ever. It needs us to be on the move as well. And so um, what we'll find, though, as we look into the book of Acts today toward the end is that movement can be resisted. Movement can be resisted. Um, and if you don't believe me, if you have a child or a grandchild in the room, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you come to the Miller household at 6.30 a.m. any day of the week when school is about to happen, you'll see what resistance looks like. Because in the morning about 6.30 a.m., my wife and I are in the process of trying to get Eli and Owen Miller up out of bed. And you will see resistance to the movement. And um, that kind of task takes patience and diligence and a hefty crane to get them out of bed and... You would think once they're they're standing up straight, then movement can finally happen. But you would be wrong because that's exactly when it does not happen. Because then you have more daunting tasks, things like breakfast and putting on shoes and brushing teeth and putting on clothing, all these kinds of things. Good luck, buddy. That's not going to happen. And so whenever this happens, each and every morning, Monday through Friday, you see resistance to the movements, resistance to any kind of movement going forward. Progress is challenged over and over and over again. And before we can look at that and kind of laugh and be like, oh, good luck to you guys or anything like that, we have to be honest and look at our own lives and recognize, too, that in our life there's resistance to the movement, too. Maybe not exactly like that going to school. Maybe some of you are like that before work. I have no idea. But in our spiritual life, we do this all the time. We're resistant to movement all the time. The things that God is wanting to do within us, ways he's wanting to change us, move us forward, heal us, whatever it is, we oftentimes are resistant to that movement, too. And it's for the same reasons as my boys. It's uncomfortable. Like to be on the move is uncomfortable. It takes a lot of effort. Um, It goes against our sinful nature sometimes where we would love to just settle into status quo. But to be on the move with God means we can't do that. We've got to do something new or something else. And so this morning, before we jump into our topic, we just have to acknowledge one thing today. And that is this, that to be on on the move with God, the movement of God is not mandatory. The movement of God is not mandatory. Here's what I mean by this. All of us in the room this morning, you do not have to grow spiritually. You don't have to. You don't have to live in obedience to God. You don't have to. You don't have to give up unhealthy practices. You don't have to live into the fullness of Christ. It is your choice, all of us. We've been given this free will by God to either receive the grace of God or to reject the person of Jesus Christ. After 20 years of serving in this church, in this community, I've seen a lot of people who have decided, I want nothing to do with it. I don't want the movement of God in my life. Many people in this church that I've seen say, I don't want this movement of God in my life. There have been many times in my life where I've rejected the movement of God and said, I'm not interested. 
It's too much work. It's too uncomfortable. I'd rather just pull the covers over my head and stay in the bed. I don't want to be a part of the movement of God. We have a choice in this. The movement of God is not mandatory. But you need to understand that even though you may resist the movement of God in your life, God's movement in the world will never be thwarted. He will continue to move. He will continue to do great things. The question becomes, will you be a part of it or not? Will you let him move in you and through you or not? So, so far as we've gone through the book of Acts, we have seen this movement of God, this gospel spread far and wide. Like it said in chapter 1, it has gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. It's expanding and people are joining in great numbers. But there are people who resist it. And certainly at the end of, of the book of Acts, we see three different people who resist it with force. We can learn a lot from Paul's experience at the very end of the book of Acts when it comes to this, this, uh, this storyline. After Paul's miraculous transformation we learned about two weeks ago, moving from Saul the persecutor to Paul the pastor, we see a transformation in his life. He relentlessly is sharing the gospel all around the outskirts of the Roman Empire. He's partnering with all kinds of people. He's taking this good news of Jesus to everybody. And we read, really from chapter 13 to chapter 21, there are three different missionary journeys that Paul goes on with different individuals into different places. So in the first missionary journey, we see Paul, and he leaves from Antioch and goes to all kinds of places, Attilia and places in between. He's accompanied by a man named Barnabas, and Paul experiences persecution all along the way as he establishes churches and as he strengthens churches. So if you wonder where all this falls into play, many of the letters that Paul writes to places like Galatia or Colossae or Philippi, it's during his missionary journeys that he makes connections with these churches and begins to write to them. So the second missionary journey takes place in chapter 15 through 18. It's from Athens to Corinth to Philippi and many places in between. He meets Timothy along the way. And then Paul goes on a third missionary journey. The third missionary journey goes from Galatia to Ephesus and other cities in chapter 18 through 21. But at the end of his third missionary journey, when Paul returns to Jerusalem, there is a plot against Paul's life. The Jews in the area in Jerusalem have decided to try to capture him and to arrest him. And so Paul enters into Jerusalem for his final time, and he's in the temple like he always is, talking about this person of Jesus, this grace of Christ. It's certainly a threat to the Jewish way of life. It certainly is a threat to the Jewish way and culture in terms of the, the law of God being followed to every uh, you know, dot and every crossing of the T. And so because of that, they get really, really offended with Paul and very upset with Paul. And so when he comes to Jerusalem, they decide to have him arrested. And so they do so with these um, different soldiers. And Paul appeals to the soldiers right away by saying, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. So because of that, you can't just arrest me and do away with me right here and right now. So they take him from the temple and they take him to the first governor um, that he experiences in the coming chapters. This governor is in a place called Caesarea, and his name is Felix. By the way, if you're looking for a name for a child or grandchild, three great names that you're going to hear in a second. Felix is the first one. So Felix, Emma already told me she got texts already saying like, hey, if you're looking for a kid's name, Felix is a solid one. Truman, just think about it. So Paul comes before Felix, who's the governor of Caesarea. And as Paul comes before Felix, he has a chance to explain himself, like why he's doing what he's doing. Why is he sharing this good news of Christ and spreading the gospel everywhere? Here's what it says in Acts chapter 24, verse 12 through 26. It's kind of a long passage here, but I want you to pay as close attention as you can. Paul speaks to Felix in front of his accusers. He says, My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple. 
or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I do admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which is another way of talking about Christianity before it was kind of a common term, the way. So I am a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in it, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these people have themselves. And there will be re- that there'll be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and all people. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring these charges if they have against me. Or these who are here should state that crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted and stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Verse 22. So Felix, the governor, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings... When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard and to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, also a great name, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. So we see here in this passage, chapters 24 through 26, as Paul is arrested, this is the first of three instances that the message that Paul has about the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been spreading throughout the chapters now experiences stiff resistance. There's many reasons why the gospel is pushed back against and why there's opposition against Jesus, not only then, but also in our lives today. And many of them are very, very similar. But we see in the governor Felix's response to Paul a common reason for resistance, even to this day. And it surfaces in verse 25. Here's what Felix said to Paul. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. That's enough for now, he said. You may leave. When I find it more convenient, I will send for you. When I find it more convenient, I will send for you. You see, what's happening here, I believe Felix was inconvenienced by the truth of Jesus. The reason Felix pushes back is because he found it inconvenient to talk about the gospel, to talk about Jesus. Rather than respond to what Paul is offering him and to receive it, he resists it because he has more important things to do, bigger fish to fry. And so he moves on. In fact, he says to the centurion, take Paul back into chains. Paul stays here for two years. It's not convenient for two years to have this conversation again. He pulls from him over and over again, but every time sends him back to the prison, sends him back to chains until it's more convenient to have the discussion. You see, we live in a world today where there is something always vying for our attention. There's always something that could be more important than talking about the gospel or considering Jesus. We have jobs We have family. We have college football. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Vacation. Sinful desire. You name it. There's all kinds of things that take our time, attention, energy, and affection away from the place that it should be placed in. So to believe in Jesus and commit to follow him means that things might have to change. 
Our priorities might have to change. Our recognition of sinful behavior may have to be a reality for us. Sacrificing old ways of living to embrace new ones may be something we have to have. If you notice within the passage, when Paul speaks to Felix, it says that he became very afraid. He said, I'll leave you for now. Go away. When it's more convenient, I'll bring you back. What's he afraid of? Perhaps he's afraid that to believe in this Jesus would change everything for him. The power structure he had put in place. All the things that are around him. And I'm afraid we do the same thing too. Maybe it's too inconvenient for us to consider this. Too inconvenient for us to embrace this. And we resist the movement. So Felix told Paul, not right now. I'll send for you when it fits into my calendar. I'll send for you when I've got time for it, when it's more convenient for me, when I can get out of it what I want to get out of it because it says Felix was looking for a way to bribe him. So I'll bring him back when it's convenient. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I had a chance to fly to Seattle for a really beautiful wedding. We were there for four days. It was awesome. And guess who didn't come? Our children. So we had a wonderful time <laughs> driving and experiencing Seattle. I've never been there before. Big thanks to my mother-in-law, by the way. So... Um, we had a great time away, and it was funny. I put these pants on this morning to come to church, and I reached into my pocket, and in my pocket I have this piece of paper that reminds me of this story that I was about to tell. I didn't realize it was in my pocket still. But a couple weeks ago we were driving around Whidbey Island, and we were in this beautiful area, and we had gone to this little town on the Possession Sound, eating great lunch and food and just seeing stuff. And we sat down to lunch one day, and while we were sitting there, this guy who was kind of running the place, managing the restaurant, walked up and began to talk to us. He was a super nice guy. And so we began to have all kinds of conversation about family, similar age range to us, has some kids and a, and, a, and a wife and that kind of thing. And so we're having this conversation, and eventually the conversation turns to Jesus. And I don't know why, but I just felt like really pressed on, upon my heart to like really try to talk to him about this. You know, I'm there for a wedding or whatever, but I'm a pastor. And so Jen and I are sitting there, and we're talking about Jesus. And it was funny, when the conversation turned, you could tell like it wasn't like he was hostile to it. It was just like there were so many things going on. Like they had moved a whole bunch. They never really found a place to plug into as far as worship or to pursue his faith. And so we kept having a conversation. I told him about our church and he could watch it online and how, what a wonderful place this place is and all kinds of things. But you could tell there was, just, there was just too many other things vying for attention than to give this real consideration. And what I find is this kind of experience is not, you know, new to Seattle or exclusive to that area of the country. It's, it's true for all of us. There's always something else that we give our attention to. I mean, travel baseball eats all of us up. The next business deal is right around the corner, and vacation is soon coming. And so we're always thinking about something else. Maybe we should take more time to consider, what about this gospel, this good news of Christ? What does it mean for me? Like, could I receive this? And so when Paul goes through the whole shebang of everything that's taken place within his life, who Jesus is, Felix's response is to go away, and when it's more convenient, I'll bring you back to have more of a discussion. You see, to be on the move with God means that we have to recognize that God is not on our time schedule. He's not just going to wait for us. God's got things to do. There are things happening in the world that he wants us to be a part of. And so rather than us trying to convince God to get on our time schedule, our job is actually to set our clocks on his. And so when he's on the move, we join him. And that is inconvenient by definition. So maybe this morning, in terms of thinking about what God is doing in your life, what do you want him to do in your life, maybe the first thing to consider is, what is all the things that I'm more concerned about than him? Maybe I should turn my attention toward that. So for two years, as I said earlier, Paul is in chains under Felix's rule as governor. And eventually a new governor comes to town. His name is Festus. There's your second name, Truman, Festus, solid one. 
So you have Felix, and then Festus, this next governor, comes to power. And when Festus comes to power, the Jews, again, stir him up to bring against uh, this case against Paul once again. So for two years, the Jews have been waiting for someone else so they could finally kill Paul and do away with him. So they get Festus riled up, and so Festus again brings this uh, charge against Paul. Paul reminds him again, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to go see Caesar. So what Festus does is he takes him then to this king, who's the king of Judah. His name is Agrippa II, who happens to be coming through town. So Paul stands before Festus and Agrippa now. Agrippa, by the way, is the grandson of King Herod, who was the one who tried to kill Jesus at his birth, oddly enough. So here's Paul standing before these two, and we see the next two resistance to the movement of God in the book of Acts, in this section anyway. Once again, Paul pleads his case before the governor Festus and before King Agrippa. Here's what it says in chapter 26 now, verses 19 through 24. Again, Paul begins to speak. He tells him about his experience and his transformation from Saul to Paul. In verse 19, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has given me this very day... God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, Festus' response to this gospel. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. So Paul again goes through this gospel message. After two years of being in chains and in prison, he he lays it all out again. And Festus' response to this gospel is essentially to attack Paul by saying, you've gone insane, Paul. All of your learning, all of your study has driven you crazy. And so he questions Paul's sanity. You see, Festus' resistance is because I I would consider this to be cynicism. Felix was inconvenienced, but Festus is cynical. Rather than dealing with the message that Paul is giving him, he attacks the person of Paul. He resists the gospel out of inconvenience in the first place, but now Festus pushes back because in all these experiences, potentially he's become cynical over all of this, including the good news of Jesus. And we experience the same thing in our life. You see, there are many reasons why people become cynical, and let's face it, we live in a culture that breeds cynicism. From social media pushing all kinds of cynicism to cable news stations and everywhere in between, we, we are conditioned to be cynical people by nature. So we lack trust in government. We lack trust in politicians. We lack trust in the educational system. We lack trust in our institutional churches. And here's the bottom line. Many of us have good reason to be cynical because many of us, we have been let down. We have been mistreated. We've been disappointed. We've been frustrated by all the things above. And the problem is when we allow cynicism into our life to reject um, this good news of the gospel because groups of people, we miss the opportunity to embrace the grace of God. And too often when we reject Jesus, we're not actually rejecting him, but instead a misrepresentation of who Jesus is because of what we experienced. And if we're not careful, we develop what I would call a spiritually calloused heart. When I was in high school, early high school, I lived in the Dominican Republic. 
And when we lived there, um, I, my cousins were pretty much the only people I spent time with that, that, could, that spoke English. Many of the other students that I was around, I either couldn't spend time with them or they didn't speak English in Dominican. So I was kind of looking for things to do. And so my mom played guitar. And so she began to teach me to play guitar. And so I, I, I tried hard to become really good at guitar. And so I would play constantly over and over each day. And when you first start to learn to play an instrument like that, your fingers will bleed. I mean, they hurt so badly. But if you're dedicated to it, you continue on. You keep playing, keep playing. And eventually, if you continue on, you create calluses on the end of your fingers, which is a great thing if you're playing guitar because you lose the feeling on the end of your fingers. So no matter how hard those, those uh, strings are, how sharp they are, you can continue to play because of the callus on your fingers. And as good as it is for playing guitar, it is terrible for spiritual growth. When our hearts become callous, we no longer hear the voice of God. We're not tender to his movement. Our hearts aren't softened to what he's doing. And for some of us in the room this morning, maybe similar to Festus, because of what we've experienced, because of being let down, our hearts have become hardened. And I wonder if the reason for some of us in this room we've rejected the hope of Christ is because the world around us has made us very cynical. We don't trust people. We find fault in people around us, and we project it upon Jesus himself. But if we want to be moved on the move with God, we have to allow our hearts to be open once again, soft once again, to the love of God and the movement of God. Now, directly following this confrontation between Paul and Festus, now is the confrontation between Paul and King Agrippa. And so directly following this, Paul has, again, a chance to claim what he believes to be true about Christ as he speaks to Agrippa. In chapter 26, verse 25 through 29, the conversations continue. Paul says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, that, that I pray to God that not only I, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for in these chains. And Paul drops the mic. So Paul p- speaks to Agrippa. Now you have to understand Agrippa is Jewish. So as he speaks to Agrippa, he appeals to his Jewish background. He said, Agrippa, you know all of this. You've read the prophets. You know what was promised about a Messiah, and yet you've missed it. And what Agrippa does, instead of embracing what Paul is saying to him, Agrippa's response is simply this. Did you really think that in such a short time you can convince me of this? Did you really think you could persuade me to believe in Jesus, Paul? What I see in Agrippa's words here is something called pride. I mean, certainly we we resist the movement of God oftentimes because we're inconvenienced by it. We certainly resist the movement of God oftentimes because we are cynical and we're we're hard-hearted and we're, we're hurt. But oftentimes we reject the gospel because in the end we're just prideful. We believe we know what's best. We believe that we can determine our life better than anybody else. Did you really believe, Paul, that you could convince me of this? That's our attitude oftentimes. I've had conversations with folks about Jesus, and oftentimes that's the end result. Did you really think talking about the Bible would convince me? Did you really think that, that talking about repentance would cause me to do something about this? And this is, this is Agrippa's response to this. I would argue that pride is one of our greatest limiting factors in our walk with Jesus, in our spiritual growth, and certainly in our relationship with others. In Muhammad Ali's heyday as a heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, 
he had taken his seat on a 747 that was taxiing down the runway ready to take off. The flight attendant was coming down the aisle as they always do, checking on seatbelts. And she came across Muhammad Ali and looked down. His seatbelt wasn't fastened. So she said, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. Ali, who had already been established himself as an incredibly powerful competitor, looked up and proudly stated, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Without hesitation, the flight attendant stared right back at him and said, Superman don't need an airplane. Too many of us have the same attitude. Too many of us, we choose to resist the movement of God in our lives because we overestimate our power and our might. And too many of us, we think far too highly of ourselves and far too little of God. And pridefulness gets in the way. In these three short chapters in the book of Acts, we see three rejections of this gospel movement, three pushbacks to the movement of God. And before we go any further, we just have to recognize that perhaps us in the room this morning, maybe even from time to time, we wrestle with this. We push back on the movement of God in our life because it's too inconvenient for us. Because we're too cynical. We've had had hurtful things happen. And so because that, we've rejected the whole thing. Baby with the bathwater, we've thrown it out. Maybe for some of us in our hearts, if we're honest, we're just too prideful. We know what's best. Why would we submit to God? So before we go further, I just want to just say here in the room, maybe that's where we are. Maybe that's something that God needs to do in our life that we need to repent from. Have we rejected Jesus personally? But where I want to end this morning is also recognizing that maybe we have someone in our life, in our family, someone we care for, someone we love that has experienced one of these three different reasons to reject the gospel. And the question is, how do we respond? How should we respond? When someone is inconvenienced, I believe we need to choose patience. Choose patience. When we encounter people who are too busy for God, who find conversations with Jesus too inconvenient, we must wait for a strategic moment to be able to engage with them about the gospel. Be patient. Because some people are not in the same place we are. Because some people haven't had the same experiences that we've had. We must be ready at any moment when it presents itself to be able to take advantage of the opportunity. 1 Peter says it this way. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But in your hearts reveal Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone, everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And don't forget this, but do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer Always be on the lookout for when the time is right for someone to be open to the grace of God. There are these moments in our lives, and we've all experienced them, where our hearts are tender toward the things of God. Even though we've been so focused on something else, so these moments like graduation or or new moves or births or crisis, and these have ways of opening up opportunities for conversation that were never there before. And where someone once was seeing Jesus as inconvenient, now they may see him as invaluable. Wait for those opportunities and be ready for them at any moment. When someone is cynical, I believe we need to choose a well-formulated faith. When someone is cynical, we need to choose a well-formulated faith. This has been one of the most painful experiences for me in terms of sharing Christ with other people. People who have been hurt by pastors, by churches. People have been hurt because of life. 
So to have conversation with them about the love of God sometimes is a very difficult thing to do because they have deep-seated mistrust or seemingly insurmountable questions. But from my vantage point, the only way to successfully share the gospel in this kind of situation is to have a well-formulated faith, to know what you believe and why you believe it, to allow the questions that you have to be wrestled with, and even the questions you don't have to wrestle with those that you know exist around you, to study the scriptures, to know church history, to look at the world and how it seems to work and allow all those things to form your faith where you know what you believe. Paul writes about this, actually, as he writes to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, here's what Paul writes. He says, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Just as you have received Christ, continue to walk in him. I'm afraid that some of us, after we've made that initial push to know Jesus, we were excited, we read God's word, we spent time in prayer, we surrounded ourselves with other believers, and eventually life got busy and we let it all fall to the wayside. Paul says, don't do that. Do not do that. Continue to do the things that you first did when you first trusted Christ. Continue to stay in his word, to continue to stay in prayer, surround yourself with other believers. That way you might grow and have a well-formulated faith, one that you could articulate in a conversation with someone else. It's one of our greatest needs as we encounter people who find themselves cynical against faith. Lastly, when we experience someone who is prideful, we must choose a life worthy of the gospel. We must choose a life worthy of the gospel. When it comes to sharing Christ with someone who is prideful, typically it is impossible to win an argument there. Don't even try. To try to prove someone wrong or get them to admit to defeat or admit to being wrong, it'll never happen. Our only hope is not to prove Jesus to them intellectually, but to prove Jesus to them experientially. Have them watch your life. Actually live it out at the tailgate, in your workplace, on a Sunday morning, in your marriage. Let your relationship with Jesus be real and let them experience that. I may not be able to win an argument with you, but you might be able to look at my life and say, whatever he seems to believe, he actually lives out. It's true for him. So it may be true for all of us. Are you just talking the talk or are you walking the walk? For someone who is prideful, this may be the only way for us to share Jesus in an effective kind of way, by living out the truth of Christ in our, in our actual lives. Paul writes about this as well as he writes to the church uh, in Philippi. In Philippians chapter, two, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, here's what he writes. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and serve you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the, in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. If you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, then live it out. Truly live it out. Here's what Francis Assisi said. He said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Live it with your life. So whether you yourself or you know someone who's experienced one of these three reasons to push back against the gospel, I think there are ways that we can respond. Maybe it's an inconvenience. Maybe we're cynical deep in our hearts. Or maybe we're just prideful. There are ways that we can still experience the love of God. I want to close with telling you a story about a woman named Fanny Crosby. 
and she wrote the hymn that we're going to sing here at the end of our service. Fanny Crosby was a prolific hymn writer who was mightily used by God to share his word through song. By most estimates, she wrote somewhere around 8,000 hymns in her lifetime. One of the distinguishing marks of Fanny Crosby was her zeal to reach people with the gospel. She encouraged others to trust in Christ every opportunity that she was granted. One evening, she made one of her frequent trips to a New York mission that she was a part of, and she wrote about it in this letter afterwards. Here's what she said. As I was addressing a large company of working men one hot August evening, the thought kept forcing itself upon my mind that some mother's boy must be rescued that very night or perhaps not at all. So I requested that if there was any boy present who had wandered away from his mother's teaching, that he would come to the platform at the conclusion of the service. A young man of 18 came forward and said, Did you mean me? I have promised my mother to meet her in heaven. But as of now, the way I'm living, that is impossible. We prayed for him. He finally arose with a new light in his eyes and exclaimed triumphantly, Now I can meet mother in heaven, for I have found God. I could think of nothing else that night, she, she writes as she left. When I arrived at home, I went on to work on it at once. And before I retired, the entire hymn, Rescue the Perishing, was ready for a melody. The next day, my words were written down and forwarded to Mr. Doan, who wrote the beautiful and touching music as it now stands. In November of 1903, I went to Lynn, Massachusetts, to speak before the Young Men's Christian Association. I told them the incident that led me to write Rescue the Perishing, as I have just related it. After the meeting, a large number of men shook hands with me, and among them was a man who seemed to be deeply moved. You may imagine my surprise when he said, Miss Crosby, I was the boy who told you more than 35 years ago that I wandered from my mother's God. The evening that you spoke at the mission, I sought and found peace, and have tried to live a consistent Christian life ever since. If we never meet again on earth, we will meet up yonder. This morning, I believe that God desires for the gospel of Jesus Christ to impact our hearts in these pews. And I believe that God intends for the gospel of Jesus Christ to impact the hearts of every person who's on your mind right now, who maybe is inconvenienced by the things of Jesus, who is cynical themselves, or perhaps is prideful in their hearts. And so this morning, this isn't flashy. <laughs> But I want to make space for us to be able to respond to the good news of Jesus. Maybe we've rejected it for a long time. We've pushed back for a long time. Or the person that we love has pushed back for a long time. This morning, I want to open this altar for us to come. Maybe we ourselves need to come and repent and say, Jesus, I repent of my cynicism. I repent of my pride. I repent of my busyness. I want to turn my attention toward you. Or perhaps this morning you want to come to this altar and lift up the person that you love and your family and your sphere of influence and ask God to continue to pursue them and woo them to himself. So I don't know how else to do this other than just say, come. You're going to hear some music that Luke is going to play right now. And eventually, as we sing, I'd invite you just to stay seated in your seats as we sing Rescue the Perishing together, the most important goal, what God is on the move all about. So I'm going to pray for us. And when I say amen, uh, Emma is going to be up here on this side. I'll be on this side. If you'd like to pray with one of us, please feel free to come forward and just motion to us. Otherwise, you are welcome to spend as much time as you'd like at this altar this morning as we respond to the grace and mercy of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we need you today. 
For some of us in the room, Lord, we've been running for a long time. We've resisted for a long time. And many of us, we are exhausted. And so I pray that this morning, Father, we would finally turn our attention to you. That we might reprioritize our life to make you the most important thing. That we might take our hurt and our pain and give it to you for healing as opposed to making an excuse to reject you. But for us today, God, who find ourselves prideful, feeling like we can live our lives without a Savior, would you remind us and make us humble? Father, we pray for every person who's on the heart and minds of those who are seating, sitting in this room this morning. We ask, God, that you would move in their hearts and lives. Bring conversation to them. May they see something, hear something. May something move them towards you, God. I'm so thankful for Jesus who came to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying. And so this morning, we, we put ourselves into your hands today. And as this altar is open this morning, Father, we're thankful that you invite us to come, just as we are, to be embraced by your love and your grace. And it's in your name that we pray.